If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In the March issue of BBC History Magazine, which is published tomorrow, the 20th of February, we've got a feature exploring the rise of the cat burglar in early 20th century Britain. It's written by Eloise Moss, a historian based at the University of Manchester, whose new book, Night Raiders, examines the fear and fascination surrounding burglary in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Our deputy digital editor, Eleanor Evans, met up with Eloise in Manchester to find out more. Night Raiders is a history of burglars and burglary in modern London. It's the confrontation between criminals and householders uh, inside their homes in a period between 1860 and 1968 is what you're looking at in your book. Um, But could you just, for our listeners, kind of explain why that window was uh, a good window to to fix this history? Okay, so um, what's really distinctive about the history of crime in this period, but specifically the history of burglary, is that the law itself has a very, very specific set of criteria for what actually counts as a burglary. So today, if someone breaks into your home at any time of day, or even any kind of um, property in any sense, it can be classified as a burglary. Now, before 1968, uh, which was when the Theft Act made that the case, before that point, Burglary by law was defined as breaking into an exclusively domestic environment, so uh, an inhabited residential space, between what are legally defined as the nighttime hours of 9pm and 6am. And for that reason, burglary has a kind of really sinister um, aspect to it, because essentially... When the burglar is nearby, you are going to be in bed, asleep, vulnerable, potentially undressed even, um, with around the presence of that intruder. So it carries a life sentence because it's entwined with ideas of um, vulnerability. It's entwined with ideas of rape. And it's even imagined as a kind of of a rape of your home, of that penetrating into the sanctity of of your own personal space um, in a period where privacy is really a marker of particularly um, being a a middle and upper class person. Privacy is, is... sacrosanct. So for the idea of what's usually characterised as some working class person breaking into that space is horror, you know, Um, and then purloining your your valuables. Um, So in the period that I look at in this book, 
burglary really is seen as one of the most sinister forms of crime and also one of the most dangerous. It's also kind of seen as one of the most skilled because actually the most effective burglar is not necessarily going to be heard or witnessed. They're going to creep in silently um, and take your valuables and then disappear out once more into the night, um, undetected and unheard. So in that sense, the burglar has a very sort of um, aristocratic position in the annals of the criminal at this time, which makes that figure so important and, and interesting to look at, and also tells us so much about how people thought about their homes, about the environment of the city at night, um, and what that different temporal context would have felt like, especially in a period when street lighting um, during the late 19th century at least, is very minimal and really confined to predominantly commercial spaces. So it gives the burglar a kind of power to kind of navigate across the city in the dark and have control over that environment as against other forms of criminal. Um, and again, that makes people really rethink the, the organisation of their homes, their cities, policing, regulation, their relationships, all sorts of different things. Mm -hmm. You mentioned class there, and mm -hmm. I think um, that's something really interesting that you explore in your book. And I wonder if uh, we could talk generally about the um, the types of people that were first perpetrating these crimes, but also then the perceptions of the people and how they differed. Yeah, um, so this is a really important um, argument in my book, and thank you for picking up on that. That's good to hear. Um, so the majority of burglars um, as recorded in court reports and trial transcripts and I've obviously spent years looking at thousands of these they are predominantly working class very impoverished they are burgling very opportunistically um, so just smashing through a window quickly grabbing a few pound coins left lying around even a, even things like a bit of food or or an item of clothing something that's portable, easy to sell, or something that's a necessity for them because they are so poor. That's what we know from, from the court records. However, the imagining of a burglar in this period is radically different. It is a sort of educated, um, socially mobile young man who is out for a bit of adventure and excitement. Um, so ideas around um, the cat burglar as this incredibly skilled criminal who plans their burglaries very carefully and then uses unusual athletic ability to break into homes and often mansions of the wealthy with whom they might be loosely connected to break in. Um, that's the source of a lot of very, very uh, popular stories about burglary in this period, in fiction and in theatre and in film. Um, E.W. Hornung, the, the novelist, who was the brother-in-law of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote the Sherlock Holmes stories, creates a character called Arthur J. Raffles, who some uh, listeners may be familiar with if you saw the Anthony Valentine TV series during the 1970s, but it's quite a while ago now. Um, he creates this character of Raffles, who is a so-called gentleman burglar in 1898, um, who is a kind of direct riposte 
introduced to Sherlock Holmes, who Hornung really views as a really sort of sanctimonious, annoyingly virtuous in some ways detective. Raffles keeps the money for himself. He is actually an upper middle class, eaten educated character who affects burglaries with the aid of his very own accomplice, his very own Watson, who's called Bunny Manders, who he also met at his prestigious school. And he does it for fun. And he does it because he views that as a better redistribution of wealth in a more exciting way than is being commonly allowed through, I don't know, getting a job, for instance, or, or any or holding high office, or any of the other expectations of men of that class in that period. Um, and he's also an incredibly popular cultural icon throughout this period. Um, there's a great film of him uh, with David Niven in 1939. Um, huge box office hits internationally as well. Um, and he becomes this kind of... Um, archetype of what the burglar is imagined to be in this period of very suave and gentlemanly. Never affects burglary with violence, crucially, um, but purloins jewels from the wealthy um, to fund his own very wealthy, very comfortable lifestyle. And I think it's that kind of sensationalized, glamorous, sexy idea of burglary that actually really comes to dominate in this period. And certainly um, it bleeds out from popular culture into other sectors. So insurers um, who want people to buy burglary insurance at the end of the Victorian period when it's first introduced during the 1880s, they're not holding up your very poor working class burglar as the kind of thing to defend against in, in terms of your home. They're holding up your skilled aristocratic mastermind burglar like Raffles or like um, Charles Peace, who was also an extremely successful real life burglar um, who affected uh, many burglaries across London during the 1870s. Um, they're using those um, figures as the justification for why you need to buy burglary insurance. Similarly, lock and security companies as well. Um, and even the police, when they're talking about the kind of challenges that they're, they're facing in their roles, again, they're talking about this imagined, brilliant, um, super clever burglar, not your kind of run-of-the-mill um, working class person um, who just needs a little bit of money to get by. Um, so in that sense, those dual ideas of burglary are, are really important to understand how the government has a relationship with the media and with um, the broader marketplace in determining particular ideas about crime and criminal in this period and changing the way people imagine who the criminal is um, and what they need to do to defend their homes. And it's, it's very lucrative, mm -hmm. that idea. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the media there. Yeah. And um, I, I'd like to talk about this fascination, particularly the Victorian fascination with the criminals, both real life and the fictional as well. How did the establishment try to censor these ideas of the criminal portrayed as a hero? So, um, 
In terms of stigmatizing people like Raffles um, as a sort of um, popular icon, because he is viewed with a sort of a great amount of indulgence. You know, people um, buy those novels and go to the theater and watch those films because they want to see him escape from the law at the end. And there's a great deal of fear about um, particularly young men being seduced into performing similar kinds of burglary as an alternative to work and to get that glamorous lifestyle. And so some of the ways in which um, the censorship around that is by kind of trying to flip that image and associate it with a great deal of, of fear instead of fantasy. Um, and the way in which uh, the government achieves this is through campaigns to better protect your home that explicitly link burglary with the threat of rape, um, that explicitly suggests that you will never recover the kind of... Um, the emotional investment in security that you had in your home previously, that your family will break down, that particularly also there's this idea that it will be women in the home who will be menaced far more than men by the burglar appearing. And it will be that the burglar will break into the boudoir or, or women's spaces in the home and threaten them. That kind of tries to shift the whole language of burglary around something that's much more fearful and um, depredatory. Um, and again, insurers and security companies, they also progressively buy into this language around, you know, once the burglar's in your home, or even um, there's a really great um, pamphlet in 1889, which is issued by the Law Accident Insurance Society, which talks about the burglar appearing under your bed at night. Um, that is used to then get you to buy things to secure your home and to get you to view this kind of creature as someone criminal and someone who we should not be celebrating. It's not actually very effective. Throughout the period I look at, there are still very pleasurable ideas of burglary that are consistently being put out in fiction and theater and film. And some real life burglars even adopt more, um, adopt the names of more famous um, iconic burglars to try and get a more sympathetic hearing in court. So they dub themselves real life raffles, you know, oh, I never committed violence. I only burgled from the mansions of the wealthy. Take pity on me. And, is, it, is this effective? It's kind of effective. I mean, um, certain burglars, there's one very notorious one called George Smithson who writes a, an autobiography of his criminal career in 1930 called um, uh, Raffles in Real Life. Um, he does sell a lot of copies of his autobiography and he's there's this romance of crime um, that appears in the popular press um, in articles about the kind of glamorous cat burglars of the era like George Smithson um, and like others as well. Um, so in that sense, it is commercial. It is kind of successful. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The idea of a very handsome young man dressed in black, um, he's very athletic, uh, clambering up into your bedroom by night is not viewed as necessarily a bad thing um, by, by everyone. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. 
Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You've, you've mentioned cat burglars mm. quite, quite a few times, and I wonder if we could look into that term a little bit more. Yeah, sure thing. So um, the cat burglar, that term, um, was first created by the Daily Mirror in 1907 to describe a burglar with unusual athletic ability. Um, It's then applied in 1910 to another burglar called George Carney, who again is found on a rooftop breaking in, but it doesn't really catch on um, until the interwar period, the 1920s particularly, and 1930s, when suddenly it seems like there's more cat burglars in the newspaper than there are any other kind of criminal at all. These feline fellows, um, as they're termed in in one popular newspaper. And I think that the reason for that is um, partly due to the aftermath of the First World War, when there are concerns that soldiers, veterans returning to a period of high unemployment, economic depression, but having had all these skills and being kind of trained to have um, a certain ruthlessness uh, in the context of warfare will actually then switch into burgling and will, you know, um, transgress the sort of regulated spaces of the city and actually get onto the rooftops and cross over the walls and climb in through the windows to get the money that they they need or to get the the jewels that they want. Um, So it's partly to do with that fear of the sort of criminal veteran um, that's attached to a lot of different fears about a a post-war crime wave um, that lots of historians have mentioned. And then it's also about the changing nature of the city itself. Um, So suburbanisation. A lot of the um, major industrial centres, and and my book looks particularly at London, so that's kind of the context I'm most uh, talking about. Um, The cities are actually becoming increasingly wealthy and the middle and upper classes are increasingly moving out of the city centre 
centre and into suburbs. And there is a, a post-war building project. These long rows of suburban interwar semis that many of us still live in now, um, they're actually conveniently squat in shape. And if you sort of take a look, if you live in one and you go back to your home tonight and have a think, hmm, um, what would a cat burglar do with this? Actually, you know, they're not high rise. You could climb into them relatively easily across different walls or um, up the side using uh, drain pipes was one of the more popular uh, methods associated with the cat burglar. And so it's actually that physical change to the urban environment that also makes people fear the advent of the cat burglar as well. Um, and then I just think there's a, there's a romance about burglary um, in this period that is associated with so many people experiencing economic deprivation and the idea that um, certain burglars have kind of taken more initiative than others to clamber up and over into people's properties and therefore avoid the police altogether because they're not operating at street level, they're clambering over and above the, the level of the street, um, is actually viewed as sort of slightly inspirational. Um, there's a historian called Gillian Spraggs who suggests that we have a cult of the robber in England dating from the medieval period with characters like Robin Hood through to the 18th century with real-life highwaymen like Dick Turpin and Jack Shepard who have been idolised in songs and ballads and in stories for as long as we can remember. So effectively she's suggesting that we all have a national soft spot for a, for a burglar or, or a thief. And I would say that pretty well bears out, actually, from my research. Mm -hmm. that, that's, yeah, there's definitely that fascination, that that romantic um, uh, fantasy aspect mm. of it comes through. And you mentioned that there is almost a, an erotic um, connotation to it as well. You did touch on it when you were talking about the, the invasion of the boudoir, but can you talk about maybe that fantasy element that accompanied it? Yeah, so the idea of a very handsome young man dressed in black, um, he's very athletic, uh, clambering up into your bedroom by night is not viewed as necessarily a bad thing um, by, by everyone. And there's a lot of quite trashy um, semi-erotica written around that possibility in stories um, of the period I look at. Um, so, for instance, Charles Peace, who I mentioned before, um, who is a villain. He's, I mean, he is um, a murderer as well as a burglar. Um, he's a prolific burglar, and he's he's finally captured and executed in 1878. Um, he's living with um, not his wife, but another woman as well in Peckham when he's caught. And yet, um, 10 years later, there is um, a Penny Dreadful, a sort of a comic um, dedicated to his life that's created over a period, that's issued over a period of two years in installments, in which he's described... Um, standing over beautiful women who are sort of smiling up at him like I don't mind being burgled by you um, and it describes how he's leaning over them and he notices the faint heave of her bosom as she shifted slightly uh, in her in her bed and became aware of the burglar and began to gently smile as he leaned over and grabbed for her jewels you know it's really like ooh creepy <laughs> Um, and there's pictures to illustrate as well. If you're ever in the British Library and would like to have a look at that, go for it. Um, and that also continues again into the interwar period with the idea of the romance of the cat burglar. And there's some very, there's a very um, 
sympathetic story of a cat burglar in um, Nash's Pall Mall magazine and it's called By Night and it's published in the early 1920s and it's where a, a wealthy young woman whose husband is conveniently away um, discovers a burglar prowling about her bedroom. She kind of wakes up and instead of being afraid, she's entranced by this handsome young man. Um, and they have a very nice conversation about it. And he steals her jewels, but it doesn't matter because she's fallen in love anyway. And then, of course, it turns out that he's a veteran of the war, so he would never have hurt her. Everything's fine. You know that kind of, um, you become really cynical about it. But you can understand the erotics of it as well. So, Yeah. <laughs> Going back to the cat burglars then, mm. you mentioned um, the innovation in kind of home protection. Mm. Um, but I'm also interested how this new threat or perceived new threat of the athletic burglar um, impacted the police force. Yes, so um, in 1933, there was a new Metropolitan Police Act that was specifically um, created around the perceived threat of the cat burglar. And what it was designed to do was to restrict the age of constables patrolling the beat, because it was discussed in Parliament that actually with these new, more athletic forms of burglar that were coming around, particularly the cat burglar, police needed to be alert in body and mind to that threat. And so they would need to actually be more youthful and more cognizant of movements happening above them on rooftops or around windows and walls than they were of what was going on at street level. So it actually really does change the way the whole city is, is regulated and policed around this idea of the unusually mobile cat burglar as well. And it has a big impact on forensic science two in the same period. Um, so because the detritus of a cat burglar is going to be um, fragments of a roof tile or um, bits chipped away from a window, it kind of requires um, those working in this field to start to rethink what the evidence of a burglary is likely to be. And they develop new forensic science circulars that give police instructions on the kinds of evidence they're going to need to gather to recognize specifically that a cat burglar has been, as opposed to your run of your mill burglar. And it's about recognizing that certain shards of glass will have come from window glass and not from other forms of glass, or that certain bits of uh, broken ceramics are from a roof tile and not from some anything else. So again, actually burglary has a really profound impact on um, the whole regulation of the city at this time. Mm -hmm. All of the people we've talked about so far have been men, but there's <laughs> a, a really interesting part of your book on um, on lady burglars. Can mm -hmm. I use that term? Yes, that's, that's my Twitter handle. <laughs> <Lady>. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah um, if we can talk about lady burglars and how they um how they were perceived how their crimes were perceived differently and how they were treated differently as well yeah absolutely so um i want to tell the world there were women burglars that are women burglars but um in the period that of this book 1860 to 1968 as far as the government was concerned and as far as um the judicial system was concerned no, there weren't. And what I mean by that is that um, 
Because women were viewed as so integral to domesticity, to home life, to maintaining the stability of, of homes and relationships in this era, the idea that a woman would kind of um, ignore all that ideology to break into a house, to threaten a family, to threaten their prosperity and their, um, their sense of safety and stability and to threaten the relationships at the core of that family by their presence, by making the home less safe, was really something that um, contemporaries fought against. And so what's really interesting in all the women burglars I looked at were sentencing practices for them where they were given either much lighter sentences and often the whilst having been captured for burglary that charge would then be changed into uh, being an accomplice of a man so a lot of women women burglars actually become quite canny about this and say oh no um, it wasn't me it was my boyfriend or my husband who had lured me into doing this or who gave me these things and then it turned out they were stolen who knew you know poor me and they say this in court and they are believed because people want to believe that, that, that a woman will not have been able to commit this crime, both on moral grounds and actually on, in terms of skills as well, because as much as the burglar is seen as the aristocrat of crime, they're associated with being particularly clever and particularly skilled. And again, this is a period in which largely women are thought to be far less intelligent than men. So how do these perceptions then sit alongside early 20th century campaigns for women's suffrage for equality. Mm. I mean, they do in the sense that um, just as women are trying fighting for political representation and representation in the fields of work and in terms of um, their reproduction and in all those different areas, um, there are also women criminals who are extremely adept at what they're doing and are achieving this most um, prestigious form of crime, if I can put it that way. Um, and so it kind of, um, the fear of women being very skilled criminals is also about the broader fear of women being very skilled at a whole range of other areas of life as well. Um, there are even allegations that certain suffragettes have turned to burglary to kind of punish um, the upper classes in this period and will target politicians as fears around that um, as well. And, you know, um, What's noticeable about films and fiction that feature lady burglars is that where male burglars are allowed to get away with it at the end, women burglars have to realise that they've been wrong all along and that actually they would be far happier living with a husband and a family and returning to the home. And so they have very sort of happy endings in a traditional sense where women renounce burglary and go back and marry someone and all is well once again. And that's totally different to what happens with men burglars. Mm -hmm. Um, can we talk then about uh, post-war burglary, which you look at um, in the book? How did that, again, move move towards this 
um, distinction within burglary? So um, after the Second World War, I mean, the, the environment of the city has been drastically affected by the Blitz. Um, and there are fears that amidst reconstruction, you also need to start um, accounting for a likely crime wave again that's about social instability after the war. And also, um, you know, there's so many fears surrounding juvenile crime after the war and the rise of teddy boys and the rise of teenagers and um, new forms of sexualized behavior. Again, they're also associated with potentially more people, particularly more young men going out and committing burglaries. Um, and so rebuilding the city in ways that are uh, burglar-proof is a key concern of the post-war period and also making citizens more alert to the things that they need to do to defend their home from burglars is something that I talk about extensively in this book because there's a series of um, campaigns and events held um, around the idea of beat the burglar, so things you can do to secure your own home. Um, so that's one dimension of how um, ideas, fears around burglary are intensified in that post-war period. There's also links with the Cold War and what burglary might be used for in that context. And so in the final chapter of this book, I talk about um, the emergence of the spy burglar. So we've had the cat burglar and now we've got the spy burglar. And this is the idea that um, certain spies are actually using burglary to steal information. And there's a series of burglaries at the homes of the Soviet ambassador in London, at the um, uh, embassy uh, school for uh, Soviet ambassador for um, diplomats' children who are associated with the Soviet embassy uh, to attend. There's a burglary from that school, um, and the fear is that that has actually been commissioned by the British government. Um, and Ernest Bevan is even implicated in this in uh, the the uh, documents that are sent to the Foreign Office by a very angry Soviet ambassador um, to actually find out what's going on in Russia and to find out if there are any secrets that are being held um, or plots going on in those um, schools and in that embassy. And then on the flip side, um, some uh, listeners may have heard of the Portland spy ring. Um, the big spy case uh, involving uh, Lorna and Morris Cohen, who alias uh, Peter and Helen Kroger during the 1950s, um, where they were um, uncovered as having stolen uh, naval secrets from the Portland spy base. But the reason, part of the reason they uh, were discovered doing that uh, on behalf of um, Soviet Russia was that they had actually applied so many anti-burglar technologies to their home that it was conspicuous how secure their home was. I mean, we're talking about a, a semi-detached house in Rieslip, <laughs> you know, and it's got like triple locks on it and every manner of burglar-proof device. And it really aroused the suspicion of neighbors about what exactly they were up to and they were definitely proved right. Um, so again, that kind of link between what's going on in burglary with the city, the broader international political situation, and fears about domestic stability and fears about juvenile crime, they're all interlinked in that post-war period. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and so all of these concerns that we've talked about um, kind of culminate in your book or in, in the in the Theft Act of 1968. Mm-hmm. So I know you touched on it in your first answer, mm-hmm. but it'd be great to detail what that act was. It's obviously still in place yeah. today as well. So what can you say about that? So where before you had the nighttime crime of burglary and the daytime crime of housebreaking, which is um, burglary from a home or other properties as well, um, that takes place during the daytime hours and carries a much lighter jail sentence. They got collapsed into each other, into one category of burglary by the Theft Act of 1968. Um, Also what the Act did was explicitly link burglary with rape. So it was now possible to be raped by a burglar as well as raped by a rapist. So that um, that association and the kind of um, the punishments attached to burglary with rape were explicitly recognised by this act. And so as much as it dilutes some of these older forms of burglary surrounding nighttime um, and the dangers and fears associated with it, it also really crystallises it and makes makes if you imagine a burglary today um or even if you see adverts surrounding insurance that make you think of burglary my educated guess would be the chances are you imagine it at night you imagine it being a man and you imagine um them appearing in your bedroom and it and it's horrible and it's our worst and deepest fears but actually that's still being stoked by the government and by security industries and insurers because that idea was proven the most effective way to get people to protect their homes. And so by the, the more obvious thing for the, that the Theft Act could have done was turn everything into housebreaking because actually there are tens of thousands of housebreakings that occur during the period 1860 to 1968. It is far more prolific as a crime. There are only thousand burglaries per year. But instead of turning everything into housebreaking, the the government decides to turn everything into burglary because it has that specific set of fears that is going to make people react in the ways that they want them to. So that's why it's the end point for my book because everything that's gone before brings us to this moment where what we think about when we think about burglary now is shaped and crystallised. That was Eloise Moss. Night Raiders is out now, published by Oxford University Press. And as I mentioned earlier, Eloise has written a feature on cat burglars for the March issue of BBC History magazine, which goes on sale tomorrow, the 20th of February. Also in this month's issue, there are pieces on Henry V, the Dark Ages, the Glencoe Massacre and a remarkable World War II evacuation. You can find that in all good retailers and many of our digital formats. That's it for this episode. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Yurt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Friday when Stephen Bates will be speaking about the Cato Street Conspiracy. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.